Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and this is our special series where I'm answering your questions. I'm a board-certified OBGYN and REI, which means I'm a fertility doctor. Today, we're talking all about ovulation. So these are questions that you called and left on the As A Woman voicemail. We are answering your questions, and so... If you have one, call in, leave it, and let us get to it. The voicemail number is 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. And this month, we are going through a series where I have grouped these questions together by topic so you can know what you're interested in. But I really like learning this way. And so in addition to our other episodes, we are going to be incorporating more and more of these. So 657-229-3672, best way to get your question answered. You also can leave a question on Instagram on Mondays. Every Monday at Natalie Crawford MD, there's a question box. You can put your question there and I will answer the ones that we can. Sometimes I've already have content about this, so it's simply directing you there. But did you know that you can go to the website, nataliecrawfordmd.com, and there is a resources tab. On the resources tab, You can type in ovulation, PCOS, endometriosis, IVF, whatever your question happens to be. And then when you're on the website, you'll be able to see all the podcasts, all the YouTube, all the blog posts, everything that exists around that topic. So please go and check that out if you are in a stage of your journey where you want more information. Also, this is a great time of year to become one of the course members. We have hundreds and hundreds of people in the courses. It's been such an inspiring thing for me because I am so passionate about education and I love all these social platforms and I love YouTube and the podcast, but having a progressive way to learn things that build off each other and visual audio modules and a group where you can get your questions answered, absolutely the best. So also on the website, you can find out more information about the courses. And we have a newsletter. The newsletter is the easy peasy way to stay in touch. You'll find discount codes, recipes, my favorite things, fertility in the news, and answers to your questions. So again, nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. And today we're just going to dive on into your ovulation questions. Hi, Natalie. My name's Anna. I really appreciate all the content that you put out to help those of us struggling with infertility. I did have a question about how you or your clinic determines when to trigger patients who are receiving medication to help them ovulate and then a trigger shot. The reason I ask is because me and some friends are going through infertility, but we go to different clinics. And what we've been told based on like the number of follicles, the size of follicles, the thickness of our lining, it's all been different between clinics. So I was just wondering if there's some general rules that you use or if it's just very patient-specific. Thank you so much again. Bye. 
I really love this question because it dives into some of the nuance that comes into ovulation. So to step back really quickly, if we just remind ourselves what is happening when we're ovulating, that's going to help us understand this entire idea behind the trigger shot. The short answer is it depends on the medication that you're taking and honestly, the goal of this cycle. But if we remember real quickly, I like to think about inside the ovary is a vault where all your eggs are kept. At the start of the month, a group of eggs comes out of the vault and each egg grows inside a follicle. The brain sends out follicle stimulating hormone or FSH and the brain sends out what it thinks is enough to get one egg to grow. And so FSH comes out, one egg starts to respond, that follicle enlarges and starts making estrogen. As it makes estrogen, the brain then says, hey, we have an egg growing and the amount of FSH decreases. When that egg is at maturity, it's making a set amount of estradiol, the type of estrogen that the ovaries make. So when you're getting to 200 picograms per milliliter and it's constant or higher than that for 50 hours, the brain then knows that there is a mature egg or it presumes there is one. Remember, my favorite analogy here is that the brain and the ovary are best friends, live in different states before FaceTime, and they talk on the phone. They can't actually see what's going on. They're just hearing the hormonal signal and making responses based on that. When it sees this high estradiol for a period of time, so two-ish days, then it knows there's a mature egg, and it's going to send out a surge of LH. LH is going to surge, and that is going to allow the follicle to rupture. The cyst bursts. That's what a follicle is, a fluid-filled structure. So the follicle ruptures, the cyst bursts. You can feel that. Remember, if you feel that pain of ovulation, you're feeling that cyst bursting, and that has a name. It's called middle schmerz, meaning in the middle, because it's in the middle of the cycle. But then what is happening is that corpus luteum is starting to form. So the egg is now on its pathway, Corpus luteum is going to form, and then you have LH pulses from the brain up and down and up and down. LH is not a continuous hormone, nor is FSH. These are pulsatile hormones because that's how the brain talks in Morse code to itself. So LH is now going to come out in pulses. The first one's going to be the surge, going to be the highest, and then you're going to have up and down pulses. This is going to cause progesterone production from the corpus luteum, which is essential for implantation. So progesterone opens and closes that implantation window. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com 
slash AAW and click get started. Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. Now, when you get pregnant and that pregnancy comes in, the pregnancy starts making HCG. We know that because HCG is the pregnancy test hormone. This is what early pregnancy is going to make. And HCG doubles every couple of days. So instead of this pulsatile LH, now you have a constant and increasing exposure of HCG. And the receptors, LH and HCG, they bind to the same place. They both stimulate progesterone production. And that's what the really big concept is here. So in one scenario, you have up and down of progesterone in the luteal phase, which is perfectly normal. Anywhere between three to 40 nanograms of progesterone can be fine. There's no set number for luteal phase deficiency or normalcy. But once you get pregnant, your progesterone should start to rise and be at a certain level, and that's because now you're getting a constant exposure. We also think that a low HCG is a way that a pregnancy that doesn't have the capacity to become a baby communicates with the body because humans can only have so many pregnancies. So if you're not going to make it, that pregnancy's not going to make it. It doesn't stimulate enough progesterone, therefore you miscarry. Chicken and egg happening with low progesterone and a miscarriage. All right, so the LH surge is what is causing ovulation in natural cycles. Now, if you are doing treatment cycles, your clinic may monitor LH surge in blood work. You may check it on urine tests. These are OPKs, ovulation predictor kit tests, or they may give you a trigger shot. A trigger shot is not LH. We actually don't have an isolated LH compound, nor do we have a synthetic LH. Isn't that interesting? We have synthetic FSH and we have a purified FSH-LH combo because both those hormones can be found in the urine of menopausal women, but we don't have an LH alone. So actually when we trigger, we use HCG, just like what happens in a pregnancy, how HCG can bind to the same receptors HCG, given in a bolus fashion, can cause ovulation. So that's what a trigger shot is. And there's different doses of it. Now, you also, side note for IVF cycles, you can induce ovulation with a medication called Lupron when given in a one-time bolus. Lupron can be used in so many different ways. Lupron is what's called a GnRH agonist. 
GnRH, gonadotropin releasing hormone, comes from the hypothalamus, and GnRH is what stimulates the release of FSH and LH. Now, if you take an agonist, that means it upregulates, what it actually is going to do is have the brain, have the pituitary gland send out all of the FSH and LH it has. Now, after that, if you keep taking it, there's nothing left to send out. And then you are what we call down-regulated. But you can use that surge or that flare sometimes in cycles for stimulation, but also in cycles for a trigger. And that's called a Lupron trigger. And these are the options you have. Natural occurring LH. You have HCG, which can be Ovidril, Novarel, Pregnil, anything that's HCG, or a Lupron trigger in IVF cycles. And then Lupron and HCG is considered a co-trigger. Now, the root of the question is when is it right to use a trigger shot? A lot of clinics use a trigger shot. I use a trigger shot also very often because sometimes it can be hard to detect ovulation on an OPK, and that gets even harder when you're using some ovulation medications just because of how they work in the body. The truth is these different medications mature follicles at different sizes. So a naturally occurring follicle is typically going to be mature around 20 millimeters or so. A gonadotropin follicle, so something that grew with FSH, whether that's gonal, folistin, menopure, is going to be mature closer to 18 millimeters. A clomid or letrozole follicle is going to be mature closer to 22 millimeters. And of course, all of these have ranges. Gonadotropin follicles often say 15 to 20. And for clomid follicles, I'll often say 20 to 24. So everybody's unique. These are averages to give us an idea. It's about what follicle size is it going to make that estrogen to stimulate things naturally. Mature follicles also grow at one to two millimeters a day. So you can say, oh, I see somebody, they have a 16 millimeter follicle and I know in two days it'll be mature. So it's also sometimes where you might be seen when the follicle itself is not mature and the lining's not perfect, perfect, but we know when it will be. And because you have a life and don't want to come into the clinic every single day all the time, very often I'll see you and then say, hey, use your trigger in a couple days, and then we'll do the IUI or you'll have intercourse after that. Now the LH surge is going to surge about 36 hours before ovulation. It might start 48 hours before, and so you see this wide range. In general, when people do OPK testing and then they're going to base an IUI off of it, they generally do the IUI the day after the positive LH surge. But we don't know if that's 24 hours, 48 hours, and studies have looked at the variation of time here, and there's really very little difference. Similarly, with HCG shots in IUI cycles, no difference in outcomes between 0 to 36 hours. 0 to 36 hours. Meaning you could come into my office and I could give you a trigger shot and do an IUI at the same time. And you have the same chance of pregnancy as if I gave you a trigger shot and brought you back in 24 hours or 36 hours. And the reason why is that that egg lives for 24 hours in the body. Sperm, however, can live up to five days. So as long as we're getting the sperm there sometime while that egg is in the process or before that's key. What we don't want to do is get the sperm there after. 
So when is your clinic going to tell you when to do the trigger shot? It is probably going to depend on a lot of different things. The protocol that you're on, what your goals are. Sometimes I might trigger somebody at a low follicle range because they have a lot of secondary follicles that I don't want to get to maturity. The more follicles in an IUI, the higher the risk of multiples. Lining is going to be thicker with more estrogen. And so if I'm doing a cycle like a transfer and I'm trying to time things for a transfer, a modified natural transfer is totally different. I'm going to push things until I think I can get the lining the best because that's the goal. So I think the take home is that it sounds appropriate that you and your friends and everybody's experience is slightly different because you really do want a clinic that is monitoring what's going on and looking at the cycle type and accounting for that. And no, it's not wrong for a clinic to make some systematic choices based on what's safest or best, meaning I have a lot of procedures that day. I'm going to do the IUI the next day so it can be the only sperm in the lab, or I'm going to do it at this time so that this person can do it. When you have a range and studies have shown that a range is all the same, allow your clinic the flexibility to make the best decision, even if that means cycle to cycle, it's different. Last thing here, I'm always, always, always a fan of asking questions and advocating for yourself. What I'm not a fan is, is presuming your clinic's doing something wrong or they're trying to take something away from you. So just be mindful of that. Sometimes working in a fertility clinic, especially for our nurses, feels like a thankless job because it's so hard and there's so much stress. So coming in saying, you're not doing the right thing. Why are you trying to do me wrong? I'm not saying anybody's saying that, but coming in with that approach versus saying, hey, could you quickly explain to me why the timing is 36 hours this time where last time it was 12? I just want to understand the difference. Very appropriate. All right, let's hear from our next listener. Hi, Natalie. My name is Maggie, and I have a question for you about having intercourse when trying to conceive uh, after you have ovulated. I believe you have done some research on this subject, and I'm wondering if you think there's any truth to it being possibly unsafe, uh, especially in the setting of recurrent pregnancy loss, to have intercourse after conception and possibly around the time of implantation. Thanks so much for all the work you do. And now a word for one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. 
All right, so this is an interesting question in another example where studies have given us conflicting answers and we have to think about the big picture and where do these things all put together. The concern with intercourse and the implantation window, so we'll just use that broadly as the luteal phase, is that potentially having intercourse will cause uterine contractions and could that disrupt an implanting embryo? Now, prior studies have shown that we do know uterine activity or contractility increases with orgasm. And we know that uterine contractions in a study after IVF and transfer has been shown to have lowering pregnancy rates. But what does this all really mean? So we'll just go through it real quick. In 2014, there was a study of about 500-ish women in 1,300 cycles showing that intercourse and the implantation window in natural cycles negatively impacted fertility meaning people who had sex two or more times in the implantation window defined as post-ovulation day five to nine had lower pregnancy rates than people who did not. And the more acts they had, the lower the rates, looking like there was a causation or at least a linear trend. That said, it wasn't the biggest study and when analyzed with cycles that we knew there were ovulation confirmed, there was not a statistically significant trend. But that led to the limit intercourse and the luteal phase recommendation. There was then a 2020 study which looked at over 600 women and 2,600 cycles and showed that when there was intercourse during the fertile window and then looked at peri-implantation intercourse, days five to nine, so they're trying to identify cycles where you could have gotten pregnant and then also had implantation intercourse. There was no difference in pregnancy rates if you had implantation intercourse or not. And a big limitation here was that 61% of people did not have implantation intercourse, probably because of the prior study and recommendations. So the overall number of people who had peri-implantation or luteal phase intercourse was low. So this is difficult, especially in natural cycles. My general recommendation here is that it probably doesn't matter, right? That's what these studies are probably telling us. Intercourse in the peri-implantation window is likely not going to make a difference, but there's probably some small subset of people that it will. So there was a study, and this is different population because the two prior are just looking at natural conception and ovulation cycles, but when people had intercourse the night before an embryo transfer, and there's some idea and some thought that Potentially having intercourse is stimulating the body, getting it ready for implantation. This study came out in 2023. It's a randomized trial, but small, about 200 people. And they had intercourse barrier protected the night before the embryo transfer. Group that had intercourse had increased pregnancy rates versus the other group. Miscarriage rate was about the same, however. And their hypothesis was that potentially intercourse improves blood flow and that helps the uterus be ready to accept an embryo or perhaps intercourse decrease stress or make the couple feel more connected and again very very small now it's important because it was barrier protected we didn't want to throw in you know natural conception if this was a modified natural cycle or infection or other factors. So if your clinic is telling you to avoid intercourse, we still are, please do that. This is very, very small. But I think when I put all of this together, 
especially in natural cycles, luteal phase intercourse probably does not make any difference. There may be a small subset of people, especially if you're having recurrent pregnancy loss or you have a lot of luteal spotting, that I might say, hey, this is not the right thing for you. And in my fertility patients, I don't recommend it when we're doing transfer cycles. So I think just thinking about where you are, understanding that the literature is really mixed on this one. But the cumulative approach is that probably not a significant difference either way. Hi, Dr. Crawford. My name is Bargavi, and I had a question on uh, low progesterone slash shorter luteal phase. This question popped into my mind after I listened to your episode on low progesterone, and you kind of explained that a short luteal phase isn't necessarily caused by low progesterone, but more so indicative of something else going on, specifically with your ovulation. So my question is, if you know or you suspect you have shorter luteal phases, which can lead to an increased risk in for miscarriage or um, implantation not even occurring, do you think it's worthwhile to still try to conceive naturally if you know you have a shorter luteal phase, or would it be best to um, wait to get in to see a doctor? And I think more specifically, would it be irresponsible to try to conceive if you know you have shorter luteal phases? Thanks. Okay, speaking my love language here, talking about natural cycles, those of y'all who do not know, welcome. In my REI fellowship, which is three years, and that is after training, right? So four years of medical school, I did five years of residency because I'm special, and I did a year of emergency medicine, which I loved, but felt this weird calling that it wasn't right for me, and it was just wrong. I don't even know how else to explain it. There was nothing wrong with the job. I have all the love and utmost respect for every ER physician that there is because I did love that job, but I knew it wasn't right for me once I was doing it. So I switched to OBGYN and obviously my heart and passion is in educating and in women's health. So it was the right move. But then I did a four-year OBGYN residency and then three years of REI fellowship. So I did training forever. And a year and a half of your REI fellowship is research. And my research was all centered on natural fertility, what we call fecundability, the probability of being pregnant per month, and a lot of it on the luteal phase. Okay, so even my research back, I'm going to date myself. So this was published in FNS, which is our favorite journal for fertility folks in 2017. And what we did is a prospective evaluation looking at luteal phase length and then probability of conception. And what we saw was that a short luteal phase was defined as less than 12 days, so 11 or fewer, and an isolated luteal phase. Obviously, the luteal phase doesn't end if you get pregnant, and that's the hardest thing to know here because the luteal phase and the first trimester, they're the same thing. But if I look at your luteal phase in a cycle, and then I look at your chance of getting pregnant in the next cycle, the odds of getting pregnant after that were lower than if you'd had a normal luteal phase length. And if you had a short luteal phase in your first observed cycle, and then we looked at you for the longevity of the study, which this was just time to conceive a natural fecundability study where you just watched people and they tracked their cycles. They had lower fertility rates in six months, so it took them longer to get pregnant. But by 12 months, everybody was the same regardless of that short luteal phase, meaning no higher incidence of infertility, but potentially some subfertility, meaning it took you longer or a slightly lower chance after that short phase. 
limiting factors in our own studies that most people got pregnant. So you couldn't follow repeated short luteal phases very well at all. There was another study that came out looking at short luteal phase and trying to see if that impacted miscarriage rates. And this study showed no association between short luteal phase and miscarriage, and they even did follow if you had a short luteal phase for three cycles looking. So I think one, we just have to admit that having luteal phase issues has not been proven to cause infertility or miscarriage. Doesn't mean it's not important. And so people will say, oh, luteal phase defect doesn't cause infertility. You don't need to worry about it. Your period's a vital sign. If something's off, something's off. And it definitely can progress worse. And if it causes subfertility or takes you longer, that's still important to me. This is you getting pregnant and trying to help you get pregnant and grow your family is very, very important. So I would not restrain from trying to get pregnant if I noticed my luteal phase being shorter. I would definitely still try. Now to your point, it also has been shown to be the first stage on this ovulation dysfunction spectrum, and it can be associated with prolactin issues or thyroid issues. It can even be associated with having low ovarian reserve. So if you're not ovulating well, potentially this could be an actual endocrine problem that needs intervention or a sign for future evaluation. I would get a workup, so I would schedule an appointment so that I can get things tested, make sure we don't have anything hormonal or endocrine going on. If you're having spotting in the luteal phase in addition to a short cycle, most people define a short cycle as 11 or fewer days. Then definitely something to bring up, might consider ovulation induction medications. That's my favorite, like Clomid or Letrozole. Some people will just give progesterone. I think that's fine too although I prefer to get to the root of the problem. So ultimately, I wouldn't let it prevent me from trying to conceive, but I would have it propel me to go in and get an evaluation sooner to see if anything else is going on. And specifically, I would want a thyroid, a prolactin, and an AMH, kind of my minimum. And then if you're having spotting also, an anatomical evaluation, make sure there's not a polyp or a fibroid or something else. Hi, Natalie. I was diagnosed with PCOS about 15 years ago by a specialist after ultrasound and blood work. Um, I was in about five years ago for an ultrasound and the sonographer said he couldn't see any cysts, so I couldn't have PCOS. Um, So my question is, can PCOS go away? Thanks so much. PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, is in its basis an ovulation issue. It's an ovarian dysfunction that often results in impaired ovulation, but not always. And remember that the diagnostic criteria right now for PCOS is two out of the three, and these are considered Rotterdam criteria. One, irregular absent cycles. Two, clinical or lab evidence of high androgens, such as testosterone, DHEAS, things like acne or hair growth or hair loss. And then an ultrasound appearance of numerous follicles. Now, these follicles are what I like to consider really part of the disease process. So if you're imagining my description for PCOS is that you're born with a lot of eggs inside this vault inside the ovary, what happens is at the start of a month, a group of those eggs comes out, the brain sends out the signal. 
in PCOS, you have more eggs than the average person. Likely this is due to genetic or environmental exposure when you're a baby in your mother's womb. Remember that from 20 weeks gestation till when you're born, you lose about half your eggs. And so exposures in that time period were really sensitive to on both ends of the spectrum. But the vault likes to send out eggs in proportion to what it has. So if you have a lot of eggs remaining, it sends out more per month. And if you have fewer eggs remaining, it sends out less per month. So if you have PCOS, you have a lot of eggs, you have more eggs released from the vault each month. Brain doesn't know, besties in different states. So it sends out its normal amount of FSH, which is not a strong enough signal to always get you to respond at the appropriate time because it just gets diluted. There's so many different receptors. Now, month to month different, those eggs are just dying. You get another group. There can be a 30% difference month to month on what the vault releases. So maybe one month there's fewer and it is strong enough to respond. Maybe after a duration of FSH, you get a response. Month to month, you can see differences, but you're still losing eggs and it's just one part of the disease. We even see that period irregularity fluctuate. Now the cysts that you see on ultrasound are just small antral follicles in the most classic description. They're considered a string of pearls. They almost look like black pearls, little small circles around the outermost portion of the ovary where the innermost is denser and really concentrated on pumping out those androgen hormones, that cortex of the ovary is that steroid making factory in PCOS. Now, does it go away? The true answer is no. If you have PCOS, you have PCOS. However, everybody's going to run out of eggs at some point, And so eventually your ovaries are going to normalize. Facts. Also, different things can cause change of ultrasound appearance. So if you've recently been pregnant or breastfed, if you are not ovulating, maybe you're on progesterone or the birth control pill, maybe you have an IUD in place, those things are going to change the appearance of the eggs so that they may not look the same because they're just not being stimulated at all, at all. And then we do know that PCOS is influenced by certain external factors that we still don't have a good gauge on, but foods you eat, having more vegetable-based protein correlates with increase in ovulation. We know that sleep and stress, so the whole state of your body really does matter, and I'm sure that reflects month to month, look in your ovaries if it's impacting this entire process. So I would say, I wouldn't think that your whole PCOS is gone based on just what one ultrasonographer said. Maybe go ahead and schedule a visit with an OBGYN and have them dive into this a little bit more for you, especially if you're trying to get pregnant or want to be pregnant. Hi, Dr. Crawford. I adore your podcast and all you do for your listeners. There's some incredible information that I've learned, so thank you for empowering us. A bit of a background on me. I have a thinner endometrium with late ovulation. Um, ovulating regularly every month, though, and a short luteal phase. So progesterone has lengthened the luteal phase to a normal 14 days, but ovulation remains very late, often greater than day 24. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak about this. Is there a correlation to egg quality? Is there a reason that ovulation can occur late regularly or any tips on how to correct this? Thank you for all you do. Bye. All right. Well, just on this, kind of wrapping up all the other things we thought about with ovulation, one thing is 
I am concerned with the late ovulation that this is a little bit of PCOS, especially with the thin endometrium. Having a baseline higher testosterone can actually contribute to having a thinner lining. I'd also be concerned that there could be some high prolactin would be another thing. As prolactin gets progressively higher, we see it go from a short luteal phase to lengthening and later ovulation to irregular cycles to amenorrhea. Prolactin can also contribute to having a thin lining as well, mostly because it's decreasing FSH being stimulated and therefore you're not getting as long of estrogen duration. So highly recommend that you've been evaluated for PCOS and then for other hormonal issues like thyroid and prolactin. Also, progesterone on the back end is not my fix for this. I would really want to see if you tried ovulation induction medication, if you could normalize your ovulation. Ultimately, a good reminder for everybody, if you are ovulating, you can get pregnant, but we're just trying to optimize it or help you get pregnant faster, and that's what some of this nuance is. All right, friends, well, I hope you loved this episode all about answering your fertility questions. If you'd love to call and leave your own voicemail, feel free, 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. Leave a voicemail. We'll get to your question. You can also leave your questions on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, or feel free to check out the YouTube channel. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.